Good morning. Great to see everybody as it is uh, every Sunday. Um, anyone here excited for Christmas to be coming around? We're in December now. Yeah, uh, today is actually the first Sunday of Advent, um, which marks the four Sundays that, are, that lead up to Christmas. Um, this isn't like a holiday season that's laid out in the Bible. It's not something that you have to celebrate, but a lot of Christians have found value for hundreds of years in having somewhat of a, a structured season of kind of waiting and, and having this anticipation uh, for Christmas, this holiday where we uh, celebrate this beautiful fact of what we call the Incarnation, God taking on flesh, um, becoming carnal. And there's this idea of like waiting where, man, it can be difficult to wait for things, right? I think most of us as adults here uh, probably don't have as much trouble waiting for Christmas to come as we did when we were children. Um, but I think all of us can relate to this idea of, hey, you know that something good is on its way, but it's really, really hard to wait for that to actually come. And today, as we are going to continue preaching through the book of Genesis— We've seen this guy, Abram, we've been hanging out with him for the past several weeks as we go through the scripture, and we know that God has promised him some really, really good stuff, and yet he isn't getting any younger, and he still doesn't have these promises that God has, has made to him. They haven't yet been fulfilled, and it's, we're going to see how does he deal with this period of waiting? How's he doing waiting for the good gifts that God's promised to him? And as we look at this, we're going to learn about God and the way that he makes sure to deliver on what he promises. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into our main text for today. Um, God, you are, are such an awesome God. I love just getting to worship you. I thank you, Lord, that we can uh, raise our voices together, sing to you. Um, God, I thank you that we can worship you uh, in, in doing what we're about to do here, too, just opening up your word. And, and fully devoting our heart and our mind to know what you have to say to us, God. Your, your word is a treasure. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really see it as that. Um, God, I pray against distraction, against um, zoning out, against anxiety about upcoming exams or anything like that, Lord. I pray that uh, you would just make this a space where we're able to focus in on what you want to say to us this morning. Speak deeply to our hearts today, Lord. Holy Spirit, we know that you're here, and we just pray that you would move powerfully. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, in Genesis chapter 15 today. Uh, but before we do that, I want to <clears throat> bring you up to speed on a little bit of, of what's gotten us to this point. Whenever we read the Bible, we always want to make sure that we're reading it in context. It helps us uh, understand what's actually going on. So as we've been trekking through the, the book of Genesis this semester, uh, one of the things that we've seen is that God has this great and intense desire to bless humans. Uh, he made all of this creation. It was all good. We see that what he, he's wanted to do when I use that word bless is even that there's this desire to give us what is good. And so you see with all these kind of things he gives, he makes it, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates humans, it's very good. And then he actually create, makes us to reign and have authority over all of this good creation. And yet despite God's desire to give us that which is good, we have seen humanity have this desire to instead choose for themselves what they think is good. Defining it differently than how God does. And that's what we 
see as sin, ultimately, taking our own way over God's. And this has led to all sorts of problems. It led to the fall and the entry of death into the world. Uh, Eventually, it led to the flood. There's been continued sinfulness after that. But despite human beings' uh, rejection of God and His ways, we have seen that God has not rejected humans, that He has still not given up on this idea that He wants to bless them and to give them that which is good. And so we see His continued perseverance in this by, uh, in, in the story of Abraham, or as we still know him right now, Abram. He'll get a name change next semester. Um, but, but God calls this guy Abram and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to turn them into a great nation. I'm going to give them a land to live in. And it's not just going to be your descendants, but as a matter of fact, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through you. So he's called out of his home country to this new place that God would show him. And honestly, it's been an adventure since that time. Uh, he, there was a famine. He went down to Egypt. He almost lost his wife there through a kind of bad idea that he had. Uh, God ended up delivering him out of that. He gets back. Now he's having family issues. Him and his nephew have both gotten so rich and have so many flocks they can't stay together. So they have to figure out how to part ways amicably. Um, and then later after that, his nephew, as he went off into this other spot, got captured in a war. I know a lot of you guys were away for Thanksgiving uh, last uh, week, but that's what we looked at was this idea that Abram's nephew Lot had gotten captured in this war. So Abram actually goes and musters a personal army and... Uh, rescues his nephew Lot, this successful rescue mission, and uh, that's going to bring us up to speed on where we're going to be this morning. And so it's after this rescue mission that God has a conversation with Abram. Now, up to this point, we've actually seen the Lord speak to Abram several times, but we've never seen a conversation really. We've never seen Abram speak back to God, but we're going to see that uh, for the first time here this morning. So let's start here in Genesis chapter 15, and we're just going to read verse 1 with what the Lord says. After these things, so after this war and the rescue of Lot, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now remember, Abram just came back from a military campaign, right? And he rescued Lot. God comes to him in a vision and tells him, don't be afraid. Now, this is honestly very kind of the Lord to do this, because I have to wonder if Abram was feeling a little bit anxious about the possible retaliation that could be coming his way. I mean, if you think about it, if you mustered a personal army to go out and defeat an alliance of kings and uh, rescue your nephew, you might think, "Uh uh-oh, these guys might find out where I live. (laughs) Um, but, But God comes to Abram, he says, hey, you know what? Don't worry. I am your shield. I am the one that is going to protect you. You know, sometimes I believe that our fear holds us back from doing the right thing. Uh, Fear easily could have held Abram from going to rescue Lot in the first place, thinking he would fail on the mission. And then even after succeeding on the mission, there's an opportunity that he could have been crippled by fear thinking about what kind of retaliation might come. But God doesn't want Abram to experience that. He says, you know what, Abram? I, I know you. I have promised to take care of you. I promise to give you land. I promise to give you descendants. I will be your shield and the one that protects you. He's directed Abram in many ways up to this point, and he isn't finished working in him yet. Now, it's interesting that God says, your reward will be very great. 
at, at the end of this military campaign, Abram had actually just turned down a giant reward. Um, after he won, the king of Sodom, which was one of the defeated kings, uh, so, so the, that Lot was living in Sodom. Sodom as, and another alliance of kings got defeated. This king of Sodom was thankful that Abram had gone and then defeated his enemies. And so he wants to give Abram some kind of reward. So in Genesis 14, 22 to 23, it says uh, that the king of Sodom is saying, hey, I'll, I'll give you all the spoils of the war. Just give me the people back that were captured. And Abram responds to him in this way. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram had opportunity to take the spoils of war, great rewards and treasures of this earth, but frankly, he wasn't really interested in it. He was already rich. He didn't need more material goods. What he did want, though, is what God had promised him. He wanted the land to possess as his own, and he wanted the children that God promised he would give him. They would turn into a great nation. And it's this that Abram is actually going to respond to God about. This promise of the children. He goes on, verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Right, so, so God has continually been promising Abram these great things. Yet, Abram's not getting any younger. It's been years, and he's still waiting on all this kind of stuff. He's like, God, you haven't even given me a son. I'm childless. And we know at this point, he was at least 75 years old. He's somewhere between the ages of 75 and 99 at this point. What's taking so long for God to fulfill this promise? At this point, Abram is saying, like, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. Maybe this is going to happen through like an adopted child type situation. Maybe I'm going to need to adopt Eliezer of Damascus uh, as, as being my heir. Now, uh, there's no record of Abram ever adopting Eliezer. I'm not saying that he did that, but it seems to me like that's what he's starting to ponder. Like, is this what I'm going to need to do to ha see this promise of God come true? And I do want to say, if, if this is the way that God wanted to do it, that he wanted to fulfill this promise through adoption, I personally think that that would have been a legitimate way of fulfilling it. Um, we, I, I absolutely believe a biological child is, is the same as an adopted child. An adopted child is every bit as legitimate a child as a biological child. Um, matter of fact, you actually see Jesus. Joseph was not his biological father, but he's referred to as Joseph's son several times in the Scriptures. Right? Mary, his mother, actually even specifically refers to Joseph that way. Uh, there's this, this instance where Jesus is, uh, stays behind in the temple in Jerusalem while the rest of his parents go back home to Nazareth. And they're like, where is Jesus? And so they're searching for him for a few days. Um, and they're stressed out. And so when Mary, his, his mom, finds him, uh, he's, it's, she says this, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. We know that. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But here, Mary refers to Joseph as his father. We see the rest of the town referred to, to Joseph that way too. In, in uh, Matthew 13, 55, <clears throat> when they saw these amazing things Jesus was saying, they were surprised. They said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this, uh, is, his mother not, is not his mother called Mary? 
We also see when Matthew <clears throat> does his genealogy of Jesus, uh, he actually traces it through the line of Joseph, saying Jesus is a descendant of David. Why? From the line of Joseph. Well, Joseph wasn't even his biological father. So I'm getting a little bit off on a tangent here, but I, I just say this to, because I know there's people in this room that are adopted, and I hope that there are people in this room that will adopt children as your own. And... Um, doesn't really have a huge point to do with what I'm saying for the rest of my sermon, but I just want you to know uh, that even biblically speaking, I, I would say an adopted child is every bit as legitimate of a child as a biological one is. So if God wanted to do it this way, I think that he could have. But that's not the plan that he had. Um, we read on. God's going to give us a little bit more detail about how he's going to fulfill this plan. Verses 4 through 6. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God was promising, I'm going to give you a biological son. And remember, He's at least 75 now. His wife is at least 65. They're probably older than that, but they're some, somewhere between, uh, he's somewhere between 75 and 99. She's somewhere between 65 and 90 at this point in their lives. Anyone here know a woman over the age of 65 that's ever given birth? It's very, very rare. It does happen every now and then. Very rarely, uh, especially with some in vitro fertilization, we have a few cases of it happening in recent years, but it's extremely rare for something like that to happen. Uh, to the point where it would pretty much be a miraculous event for a woman that old to be able to give birth. And since this is hard to believe, God doesn't just tell Abram what he's going to do. He leads him outside and he shows something. He says, look up at the stars. Try to count them. You're going to have so many offspring that they're going to be like the number of the stars in the sky. Now, I, I love the fact that God does this. I think it's like a total power move, actually. Because in one, it's showing two things. First, it shows the magnitude of the promise. Abram, I'm not just going to barely give you a son or something. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants that they're going to be like the number of the stars in the sky. He is going to absolutely come through in this promise. But two... By having Abram look up at the stars, not only does it show the magnitude of the promise, but it shows God's ability to deliver on the promise. When Abram looks up at the stars, he sees more than just a bunch of dots that can't be counted. He's seeing the work of the almighty creator of the universe. He's seeing that God is a powerful God. If, if God is the God who can make and place all of these stars in the sky, then certainly he can have an old woman give birth. Seems pretty easy for someone who can create the stars. So I would just say, next time that you have trouble believing one of God's promises, I encourage you, just like God took Abram out, go, hey, look at the stars. Honestly, I encourage you to do that. We'd be wise to look at creation and let it remind us of the power of our Creator. You know why? Creation is the one miracle that all of us get to see. So one miracle that all of us could see. You may never see a blind man receive his sight. You might not get to see a paralyzed man walk. You may not see a man raised from the dead. But you do get to see the stars. 
You get to see the mountains and the trees and the lakes. You get to see the multitude of creatures that fill the earth. You get to see the human beings that are made in His image. And honestly, guys, all of this is totally miraculous. And it speaks to the power of our God. If He can make all of this, whatever else He says He's going to do, He's certainly capable of it. So Abram looks up at the stars and he believes God. As crazy as it sounds, he believes that God is going to give him a son in his old age. And we see that God counted this faith to Abram as righteousness. This is interesting, right? What is this teaching us about righteousness and how God counts it to us? Abram's counted righteous not because of any particular deed that he does or because his overall balance of good deeds outweighs his bad. We've seen Abram. He was a great guy. He has a lot of good stuff in his life. He certainly wasn't perfect though. But God sees his faith and he makes him righteous because of that. And the Apostle Paul, thousands of years later, would pick up on this passage. And he would say, hey, you know this, this reality of Genesis 15-6 where it says that uh, Abram had faith and it was credited him as righteousness. That wasn't written there just for him. Like That's written there for us too. And I want to pick up on how Paul teaches on this in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 25. Speaking about Abram, he says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead Jesus our raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see just as Abram was counted righteous because of his faith this is also how we will be counted as righteous as well. We cannot be perfectly righteous on our own. There's nothing that we could do to actually stand before that perfect, almighty, like creator of the stars, God of the universe, and say, oh yeah, God, I'm worthy of being in your presence. I'm righteous. We can't do that. But we see that there was one who makes us righteous. As Paul refers to the one, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Guys, this is the gospel. The, the, the belief, that this, this beautiful God that we've been seeing uh, in Genesis that, that has the desire to bless and to give what is good to humans. Th- did humans do anything to deserve all of that good creation? When you look at even back at Genesis 1, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Did humans do anything to earn that? No. Matter of fact, they didn't even exist. But, but what was God's desire? That he would still bless them and give them what is good. And, and we see here that, as, and God continues this same kind of theme. What's he do with Abram? He calls him, he makes this promise. Does he make this promise to give Abram the, the land and the descendants based on anything that we see about Abram? No. He makes this promise to Abram. It's, it's completely unconditional. He doesn't say, Abram, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. So I'm going I'm to accomplish this. <clears throat> and while we were stuck in our own sin and in our own inability to actually be righteous on our own, he says, you know what? 
I'm going to make a way for you to be righteous. I'm going to take on flesh, so we're celebrating at Christmas, that God himself would come and take on flesh and walk among us, live the perfect and righteous life that we were not able to live, and that he would die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he hung there for my sins and for yours, saying, I'll take that on me and I'll give you my righteousness. And what it takes is faith. And as we have that faith in Jesus who bore our sins, we can be credited as righteous because of what he's done for us. You know, our God is, is an awesome and generous God who wants to give us righteousness even. You know, he, he tells Abram about the way he wants to bless him. He wants to give him these descendants. But, and, and Abram's asking, how, how is this going to happen? And so, so God reassures him, Abram, it's going to happen. Look at the stars. And then he goes on and actually reminds Abram of the other part of the promise too. Abram doesn't even ask about it, but he, he, he goes on and brings up the part about the land. If you read on in Genesis 15, 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, we see a promise that God has made, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Abram's been living in this land that God is, is going to give to him, but he doesn't possess it. He doesn't own it yet. There's still all sorts of other people that are living in this. He's just a guy that is living with, yeah, there's a lot of people in his entourage, but he doesn't have any descendants. He doesn't really have any real uh, claim or possession of this land. So Abram asks God, how can I know for sure that I'm going to possess it? Essentially, it seems that Abram is asking God for some kind of proof of promise. And actually, we do this all the time for various promises. I know this is a time of year that a lot of you are signing leases uh, for apartments or houses that you're going to be living in next year. What is that? That's, that's a proof of a promise, right? Your landlord has made a certain promise to you like, hey, I'm going to let you live in this space and not some other random person. Uh, and you've made a promise, hey, landlord, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I pay you the agreed upon amount of rent uh, every month. There, but but what, you, you could just leave it at that, but there's a proof of promise in the lease. You sign it, you say, yes, we've, we've agreed that this is for sure what's going to happen. And you might say, well, that's necessary because landlords and tenants generally don't know each other and they don't have any reason to trust each other, so it's important to have some sort of document like that. But even between parties that trust each other, there's still value in having something that's a proof of promise. And this is what we actually do with weddings, right? Uh, weddings are celebrations, but there's vows that are exchanged there for a reason. And when, when the, the bride and the groom stand there before all of these, these uh, friends and family, what they're doing is, is they're giving proof of the promise, they, they could have just kept it to themselves and said, yeah, we're going to make sure we're going to be faithful to each, other, to each other, but there's something valuable and powerful about having that ceremony that leaves no doubt about the promise that's being made. And the vows are laid out in certain terms. So we see that what God is about to do is actually perform a certain kind of ceremony that gives proof of promise to Abram about the possession of this land. So let's read on here. <clears throat> we'll, we'll read from 9 to the end of the chapter. He said to him, 
bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, this is a really interesting scene and an interesting uh, ceremony that, that God puts on in response to Abram's question about how will I know that I'm going to possess the land. In promising Abram the des- uh, descendants, he, he did something relatively simple. He had Abram come out, look at the stars, right? That's my, my proof that I'm going to fulfill this promise. Here, he does something a little bit more fantastic and out of the ordinary to confirm his promise about giving the land to Abram. There's a lot to work through here, so I'm going to do my best to work through it in an organized manner uh, to help you understand the, the magnitude of what's, what's happening. Um, but one thing I'd say is that here God is giving Abram a picture of the future. He falls into a deep sleep, and in this sleep he gets more detail about the promise of God. It's not really a new promise. Uh, matter of fact, when Abram went out and, and uh, was told to, to k- try to count the stars, that wasn't a new promise either. It was just a little bit more detail that he was being given. Well, here, he's getting details about the possession of the land. God not only tells him some of what will happen, but he even lets Abram kind of experience it on a certain level, right? So, th- so through this, this uh, kind of strange scene, I believe that Abram learns and experiences several things. And the first I would say is that Abram experiences God, God's holiness, as his descendants would as well. In Genesis 5.12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Okay? I think this is talking about something different than just the closing of his eyes, right? Uh, otherwise, what would be the point of drawing out this idea of dreadful and great darkness? Every time I close my eyes, I have darkness fall upon me. But there's, there's something else that seems to be communicated here. And I think that what it is, is it's, it's communicating this intense, powerful, um, almost kind of scary holiness of God. And honestly, this is something that Abram's descendants would experience as well. When God leads them out of slavery, you know, he, he says you're, they're going to be oppressed for, for 400 years in this foreign land. Well, when he brings them out, Finally, you know, he, he does the, the plagues, he parts the Red Sea, they're out in the desert, and then 
there's this fantastic show on Mount Sinai where there's this smoke and thunder and lightning and there's this thick cloud of darkness, as a matter of fact, that Moses is called into to come and speak to the Lord. And we see this in Exodus 20, verse 21. It says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I think the author is drawing a parallel here between seeing, like, man, this, this thick darkness shows the, this, the holiness and the intensity of God. That, that Abram is being called into as, he's being, as truth is being communicated to him, and that Moses would also be called into as truth is being communicated to him. You know, we also see that Abram, just as he was a sojourner and had to wait, his descendants were going to experience this as well. God said in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Certainly not what you want to hear. This is going to happen to your great-great-grandchildren. Um, but he's helping him realize, man, Abram, just as you've actually been going through this experience of having to wait and wait and wait for the promise to be fulfilled, even after you, your descendants are going to have to go through a long time of waiting before they actually come and possess this land as well. But we also see that just as God would take care of Abram, he would also take care of his descendants too. We see for Abram personally, things are going to go quite well for him. In Genesis 15, 15, he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. His descendants, yeah, are they going to go through oppression and slavery and difficulty as they wait to take possession of this land? Yes, they will. But ultimately, God is going to take care of them. We see in verse 14, it says that they're going to come out with great possessions, that they will come back to the land. And this is exactly what happened. If you read the Exodus story, which so much of it is being foreshadowed here in this experience with Abram, you'll see that when God actually brought them out of slavery, it wasn't just that they were brought out of slavery, but they even it says they plundered the Egyptians. Like the Egyptians were so ready to get them out of there after these plagues that they gave them all sorts of gold and silver and stuff. You know, the fourth thing, God led Abram to this land and God is going to do the same for his descendants. Back in Genesis 12:1, when we're first introduced to Abram, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He didn't know exactly where he was going, but he knew that God was going to show it to him and lead him on the way there. And just uh, there's a very similar thing in that when God brings uh, them out of slavery, he doesn't bring them out with a map or a GPS or something like that. It's actually God himself that would lead them to where they needed to go in the promised land. And he did this um, by, by something I think that's actually being imaged here. <clears throat> There's this, this strange thing. This, it says this smoking uh, fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces of the animal, of the animals that were, that were his little aisle way. Now, why does God seem to appear in this as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? Well, if you read the Exodus story, <clears throat> how is it that the Lord goes before the people of Israel to lead them into the promised land? In Exodus 13, 21 to 22, it says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire 
to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so there's even this idea of like the, the Lord is, is leading. Uh, <clears throat> he led Abram into this land. His descendants are going to be away from it for a long time, but he will be the one that leads them back into it. I would also say that here in this experience, <clears throat> we see that God is righteous and that he executes judgment. And what I mean by this is God makes sure to set all things right at some point. <clears throat> you know, there's a reason that Abram isn't getting all of the land right away. The, in verse, uh, ch- sorry, chapter 15, verse 16, it says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we, when we read the Bible, see God's interaction primarily through Abram and his descendants. But sometimes that can lead us to a misunderstanding to think like, oh, that God doesn't care about all the other nations. God absolutely cares about all the other nations, and he deals with them justly and properly as well. We don't get the same kind of view, and yes, there is a special covenant that God made with the people of Israel, but he still cares about about dealing fairly with the Amorites, with the Egyptians, with many others. You can read the prophets. They, they speak oftentimes to Judah and Israel, but other times they speak about how God is going to judge or deal with other nations too. And so part of the reason that Abram doesn't have this land of Canaanite is because the people that are living there, God's still actually giving them more time. They're living in sin, but, but for whatever reason, he's decided it's not actually quite time to judge them yet. That judgment will actually come later when God leads Israel in their conquest of the land. You know, we also see that God is going to judge the nation that oppresses them. Now we know that that nation is Egypt. In verse 14 he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. God is a just and righteous God. There there may be times that we don't always understand his timelines or how he's doing things, but we can be sure that at some point he is going to set all things right. And, And honestly, biblically, we see God brings up nations and he brings them down. There are things that, that we might interpret through a completely secular worldview, but when you look at the scripture, you definitely see the Lord raising up kings and tearing them down. Raising up nations and tearing them down. And uh, man, I, I don't know God's timeline for how he decides when he's going to judge various nations, right? He let Egypt enslave Uh, the Israelites for 400 years, but then eventually he judged them with the plagues and brought them out. He's letting the Amorites live in this land for a long period of time, but eventually he's going to judge them, and their land will be lost and given over to the children of Israel. And then you know what? Eventually the people of Israel come in there, and what happens to them? They're judged and sent into exile. I think that we have something to learn from that. I, I, I don't know what exactly uh, God's timeline is for us, even as a nation or something like that, but, but if we think that the Lord will just allow sin to continue to go unchecked and that he doesn't care about it forever and ever, we would be wrong. You know, I believe that this concept of God's justice and setting all things right is actually part of what's going on with these animal pieces, all right? Now, it's, it's hard to say with 100% certainty why God had Abram go and grab these animals, cut them in two, lay them on the two different sides. You can read different commentaries. They'll, they'll give you some different insights into what people think is going on here. 
Um, it is interesting that all of these animal pieces, they're all sacrificial animals that would later be part of, like, that you would see in the law. They're part of sacrifices. Um, but one thing that I think this could mean is that they, they seem to be part of a covenant ceremony, right? Just as a, a wedding is a covenant ceremony, right? We, we do things that have uh, certain symbols in them that, that represent a, a greater truth. So if you go to a wedding, oftentimes you'll see some sort of unity symbol, right? A lot of people have a candle where they like, there's two candles that represent the, the husband and the wife, and then they like light them together to make one candle. Represents the two becoming one flesh. Or like my wife and I at our wedding, uh, we still have a, a braided cord that, that's above our bedroom door. And it, it represents the way that we were braided together, uh, me, her, and the Lord. So whatever, you, you, sometimes you'll see maybe a jar of sand where two people have these two different colors of sand, they mix it together, and the sand is essentially inseparable because the two have become one. You'll see different things like that in covenant ceremonies that are communicating an important truth. And with this, the ceremony of passing between these pieces of a split animal seems to suggest that it's representing the severity of breaking the covenant. Meaning, hey, you, you split these animals, you walk through them, and it says, if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, to what I say, let the same thing happen to me that's happened to these animals. Now, we actually see a bit of a reference to this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20. We don't know specifically what, what uh, event it's talking about, but I just want to read this passage for you from Jeremiah because I, I think it's helping shed some light on what could be going on here in this ceremony. Um, God's speaking about people who have been unfaithful to a covenant. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So, the, the Lord in, here in Jeremiah, through, through Jeremiah, is uh, speaking about some sort of ceremony that apparently took place where there was a split calf and the people walked through it. And it seems to symbolize that if you walk through this, that you're saying, if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, let the same kind of thing happen to me that happened to these animals. What's interesting here is that God is the only one that passes through the pieces. He never asks... Abram to pass through the pieces of the split animal. Abram's a beneficiary. He's the one that's going to, to get all of these good things that God has, but God puts all of the onus of actually keeping the covenant on himself. He's the only one that passes through it. He cares to bless Abram so much, and by extension the whole world through him, that he shows he's willing even to die and be mutilated if he were not to keep it. Now, if that is what's going on here, that shows us something amazing about our God. That he's so set on blessing humans and giving them that which is good, that he would be willing to put his own life on the line in order to do it. You know, even if this is a, not what's going on here in the ceremony. Maybe there, like I said, there's, it's hard to know for sure. We don't have a ton of records about ceremonies like this. Even if that's not necessarily what's going on here. 
We actually don't need this ceremony to communicate that truth that God is willing to be broken and slain in order to bless human beings. Because he made it very, very clear to us when he instituted another covenant. We know this reality because of a later covenant he would make that he offers with you and with me. And this is a covenant where Jesus, God in the flesh, had his body broken and his blood poured out for us. Isaiah 53 even prophesied of this. Where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. <clears throat> Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. God does care so much to, to, to bless humans and to give them what is good that he would say, I am willing even to be broken and killed to give you what I want to give you. God wants you in a covenant relationship with him. He wants you to be tied together with him. And he was willing even to be broken and pierced and killed for that to happen. You know, most covenants have some kind of symbol. Talked about the symbolism of... of, uh, this, this idea of passing through the pieces, you see this, the symbolism that goes on in weddings. And Jesus, knowing that he was about to institute this new covenant, where Jesus, God in the flesh, would be broken and pierced and killed for us, said, I'm going to give you symbols to remember this covenant. And he gave them to us at the last supper that he ate with his disciples. And Matthew chapter 26 Uh, This is the night before he's about to get crucified, sharing the last meal with his disciples. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood was poured out to institute a covenant that would forgive us of our sins. And so today, we're going to take part in that, that remembering that covenant. In, in engaging with the symbols that he gave us to actually even do that. So we're going to be taking communion. And band, you guys can come on up here as I'm, I'm drawing to a close. In the back of the room, uh, you'll see that there's a basket, there's baskets of bread and there's baskets of juice. And if you're a Christian, if you believe that what I'm saying is true, that God really did take on flesh, that he really did walk among us, that he really did live a perfect life, that he really did go and die on the cross and he died there not for his own sin, but for our sins. That he was pierced for our transgressions. And that by his wounds we can be healed, meaning that when we put our faith in him, we can have it credited to us as righteousness. We're not trusting in any sort of good work that we do. We're not trusting God let me into heaven because I'm a good person. We're saying, God, you've made me righteous by the blood of Jesus. This is the blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. If you believe that, then I invite you to partake in this practice.
And so as we enter into this next uh, set of worship, they'll be playing some songs and, and, and uh, you can sing, you can sit, you can pray, you can kneel, whatever you need to do at this time. But uh, as you feel ready, you can go back there and, and take a piece of the bread that represents the, the body of Christ that was broken for us. And you can dip it in the juice that, that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins and you can eat it. And in that, saying, yes, Jesus, I believe in the sacrifice you made for me. And you know, the, the amazing thing is, Jesus was a man, but he was God, right? It's, it's, it's crazy. He's, he's both man and God. And so he's, he's man in that he's able to die for us. But he's God. And in that, like, he, he, death wasn't going to keep him down. He was raised from the dead. And he, he went on when he, he gave this symbol to his, his disciples to remember him. He says, I'm not going to drink of this wine with you again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we know that, yes, even though the, the body and blood of Jesus was broken for us and poured out for us, it doesn't just end there. He rose from the dead and he invites us into new life with him. He invites us into a life where we get to like live and, and walk in that promise right now. Someday, we're going to get to drink wine with our Father in the heavenly kingdom. But just like Abram was kind of sitting in this space where it's like, okay, I know that this promise has been made. I know there's this really good thing that's coming. But right now I'm waiting. He was experiencing it to some degree, right? Like the, the, he was actually living in the land. He just didn't fully possess it. And, and guys, in, in many ways, we find ourselves in the same situation. We have so many of the, the blessings and benefits that, that come from being brought into this new covenant with God. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He helps us to grow in righteousness and, and we have access to him. We can pray to him. We can walk with him. We can know him. Uh, we, can, we can learn his ways. But yet we know that we're actually still waiting for something that's even greater that's coming. Or one day all sin will be erased. The curse of sin and death, all that's going to be gone. And as we take this, this uh, practice of communion, we're, we're remembering what Jesus did to make it possible for us to take part in that new creation that we know is coming. It's both a looking back at what Jesus did for us and a looking forward to what he has bought. And so as we go forth from here today, and I know for many of you, as you go forth from here from this semester, I'm not going to see you again for a few weeks. I know uh, for many of you, I will get to see you over Christmas break. That's great. I'm gonna be, we'll be excited to keep worshiping the Lord together. Um, but regardless of what these next few weeks or this next month holds for you, I hope that you can come away from here today remembering that we serve a faithful, powerful, and awesome God that keeps his promises. If there is anyone that you can trust to keep his promises, it is God. It is the creator of the stars in the sky. It's the one that said, I'm willing even to be broken and to bleed and to die for you to make sure that I fulfill what I want to give to you. So let's pray. And then, uh, yeah, we'll enter in this time of worship. And as you're ready, if you're, if you're a Christian, you believe in the gospel, then I invite you to go back and take communion. God, we love you. You're so awesome. You're so worthy of our worship. We thank you um, just for who you are, Lord. We, we could never sing enough praise to you. Like, we could never 
capture how good you are, we can never say thank you enough. But we pray, Lord, that you would accept our offering of praise with our lips here. Holy Spirit, work in this space as we um, just take part in this practice, remembering the symbols of the covenant, the broken body of Jesus and the blood that was poured out. Thank you for bringing us into relationship with you. We love you so much, God. You're worthy of all glory. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.